Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Is that normal for it to take two weeks between a request and a granting of search warrants? So I suppose that would be a question for the Crown. It's not questions for government or ministers or the First Minister. We would never dream of interfering, neither in a live police investigation, but certainly not in a search But I think I'm asking something warrant. different. Wouldn't, wouldn't you want to assure yourself that there was no delay in the granting of those warrants. Well, what I've seen from the Crown Office, and you remember, of course, the Lord Advocate, the Solicitor General, who are also members of the government, they will recuse themselves for any decision that is to do with a, uh, any politician. I don't believe that there would be any particular reason out of the ordinary uh, that it would take that time, but again, it would be a question for the Lord Advocate, it would be a question for the Crown Office, as opposed to the First Minister or indeed any, any minister. Hello and welcome to Holyrood Sources. I'm Callum MacDonald. It's Wednesday, the 17th of May. Thanks for being with us. If you've been a subscriber and a follower from the start, well done. Extra points to you. You are brilliant. And if you're just joining us for the first time, welcome. Welcome, welcome. You don't need to go anywhere else for the best analysis and discussion of Scottish politics today. If you scroll back in your feed, that's all the evidence you need. Welcome along. Great to have you there. Also here with us, as ever, Jeff Aberdeen, former Chief of Staff to Alex Salmond when he was First Minister of Scotland. Hello, Jeff. Good morning. And we've got Andy McKeever with us, former Director of uh, Communications for the Scottish Conservatives. Hello, Andy. Good morning, good morning. Hello, lovely to have you both there. I am, uh, I'm actually doing the podcast today from the shore of Loch Onich. Not far from Fort William, so um, I feel very bathed in this you know, glow. And of... you've got better Wi-Fi than you had in London last week as well. <laughs> that, so what are you going to say about that? Is, that is absolutely true. Uh, <laughs> uh, also on the podcast with us today, uh, our special guest is Adam Tompkins, who was Conservative MSP for the Glasgow region from 2016 to 2021. Now a constitutional lawyer at the University of Glasgow is his main focus, and previously a constitutional advisor to the House of Lords Constitution. Committee and the Scotland Office. Adam, welcome to the podcast. 
Thanks for having me. Great to be here. It's great to have you there. Thank you very much. Lots to talk to Adam about today. Um, he's got a massive brain, and we intend to use that to our advantage <laughs> over the course of the next sort of 40 or 50 minutes or so. Uh, right, first, let us get into the latest on Scottish politics with Jeff and Andy. Um, and Jeff, I want to start with you, and I want to start with Hamza Youssef. Um, <laughs> always a safe place to start, mainly because he's been doing yet another interview. Um, this morning, this Wednesday morning, we're recording on the 17th of May, on BBC Radio 4, a new radio station to me, I've never heard of it, it sounds dreadful, but they've been speaking to Hamza Youssef nonetheless, um, and, 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 he's, and he's been speculating, he's been speculating, I think that's the key word to take out of this, on the, on the search of Nicola Sturgeon's house and the warrant for that. Um, first of all, what's he been saying and what do you make of what he's been saying? Well, he's um, been responding to um, this uh, allegation revealed in the uh, the Sun earlier this week that there was a two-week delay uh, between uh, an arrest warrant being sought and then executed. And the most crucial thing from this point of um, interest is the fact that uh, that, of course, took place during the SNP leadership contest. Um, and the uh, uh, decision to uh, arrest and the execution of the arrest took place after the leadership contest and so there's a lot of people speculating that it was done on purpose um, and uh, Hamza's been asked about this and he has speculated by saying I don't believe there will be any particular reason out of the ordinary that it would take that amount of time. Now we've talked on uh, this podcast before um, welcoming Hamza's willingness to be transparent and uh, willing to be questioned by the media. But again, I, I just don't think that this uh, helps his cause. I think you've got to choose your moments. They must have known this question was coming. Far better to stonewall it and say, no, no, uh, the uh, Lord Advocate uh, is independent and that this uh, is a matter for them. You don't engage on the premise. Uh, and I feel that uh, yet again he's, he's letting things get away from him uh, and events control his agenda as opposed to his agenda controlling events. And that's got to be changed going forward. Andy, just on Hamza Youssef and the, I suppose the, the week he's having, the period he's having, if I look at the front pages of Scotland's newspapers from this morning, the Scotsman, building new ship, quote, cheaper than finishing delayed ferry. Uh, building a new ferry would be cheaper than completing the second Calmac vessel that's under construction at the Ferguson Marine um, shipyard. So the ferry scandal continues and trying to serve Scotland's island communities with ferries that actually work is still proving uh, slightly tricky. Um, on this, uh, have they completely lost their marble? is the front page of the Scottish Daily Mail. SNP minister admits delayed ferry isn't value for money and it would be cheaper to buy a new one, but then vows to keep on pouring money into doomed project. Front page of the Times in Scotland, fury over public cash sunk into ferry fiasco. Uh, and the Scottish Daily Express moves on to, or, or talks about what Jeff was just discussing there, uh, which Hums has been pressed on this morning. Crown office silence on SNP raid, quote, delay. Uh, what sort of a week is the First Minister having? pretty normal I would say uh, <laughs> given the first five or six weeks I mean there's an interesting contrast here actually because I just don't think Hums is getting his media strategy right at all um, he's using I mean this sounds basic but he's using too many words he's saying far too much he's using ten words when he could use two or three and it's actually getting him into trouble so as Jeff I won't go back over what Jeff said because Jeff's quite right you know sometimes you just have to not accept the premise of the question he is not a spokesman for Nicola Sturgeon 
And that's what he has been doing far too much of for three or four weeks now. He's been a spokesman for Nicholas Sturgeon. He's been the first line of defence for Nicholas Sturgeon. He's got to run a mile from that. He just has to. He's the first minister now. He has to answer things on his terms, not on somebody else's. And I think that's what he's failed to do. The interesting contrast, actually, was is with one of his most loyal deputies, Neil Gray, who was on BBC Radio Scotland this morning about the ferries. And, you know, the... This ferry issue is... The opposition yesterday said it was embarrassing for the government. It's much wider than that. This is embarrassing for the whole country. This is embarrassing for all of us, this ferry situation. I mean, you know, the Faroe Islands are building 10-kilometre underwater, underwater subsea tunnels with roundabouts, and we can't build a boat, right? This is, <laughs> this is humiliating for all of us. And yet, despite that, I thought Neil Gray did a very good job of giving a very straight, very frank, fronted-up interview on Radio Scotland this morning about that. And he came away looking, I think, pretty decent. And in fact, the opposition parties on Radio Scotland agreed with his decision yesterday because there was a bit more to it than just the cost. There was also trying to uh, promote more work through that yard. And I I think I I just thought the contrast this morning was quite interesting. You know, Neil Gray who should have been under enormous amounts of pressure given the subject that he was talking about, came away looking okay. Hamza mm. Youssef, with a kind of almost an open goal interview on Radio 4 to talk about you know his time as First Minister and what he's aiming to do, again, the top line is something that he says about Nicola Sturgeon. It's just not... Um, he needs to reset. It's blank sheet of paper time, I think, from for, for Hamza and his media strategy. It's not right. I should say as well, just it's interesting on the ferries um, because one of the issues with this is 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 how little attention has been paid to those with knowledge and expertise um, and in the consultation in inverted commas phase, not listening to those local communities and, and the needs of those local communities. I mean, it sounds simplistic, but let's be real here. In island communities, there are many, many sailors who know how boats work and they could have got this up and running with advice and guidance and even the public consultation I remember this for the Isle of Lewis the, the consultation was we would like two smaller boats shuttling back and forth between Ullapool and Stornoway that way it keeps things moving if one breaks down there's still one in service etc wasn't listened to completely ignored and so there's a really interesting kind of aspect to all of that as well and you know Neil Gray um, right there wrongly kind of taking things on as you say Andy um, and I suppose there is an element of clean slate I guess you know I'm new to the job I'll pick things up from here um, Jeff, just to while we're talking about policy, it's interesting to consider um, something else that's happened um, since we last spoke. Uh, trial by jury, one of the fundamental building blocks of the British justice system, says Channel 4 News, but the Scottish government is proposing to scrap juries in rape cases. They say holding trials in front of a single judge might help improve the country's conviction rate. Um, lawyers in, uh, across Scotland have voted to boycott the judge-only scheme over fears it will threaten the right to a fair trial. That's Channel 4 News. Jeff, we'll get you in on the kind of policy aspect to all of that in a sec. I wonder, Adam, if I could if I could borrow your expertise on this, actually, just to get us going. Um, what do you make of this development, this proposal, first of all? Lawyers are clearly against it. They're voting to boycott the idea. So so what on earth is going on? Are, are, is, is this a kind of, I don't know, a, a, a mess being created where there isn't the need for a mess to be created? Well, some lawyers are against it, um, and, and the, the, the lawyers who, who appear in courts um, are against it. But the proposal, this is a very unusual policy proposal because it doesn't come from the government. It comes from uh, the judiciary, the very top of the judiciary. The Lord President and uh, um, his deputy, Lady Dorian, 
um, who've been looking at these uh, issues, uh, particularly with regard to the prosecution of, um, of sex crimes, um, sexual offences in, in, in Scotland. Um, so it's true, absolutely true, that the Faculty of Advocates and the Law Society of Scotland contains numerous advocates and uh, solicitors who are opposed to these plans. But the, the genesis of these plans lies in the judiciary themselves. And at least now we're talking about only abandoning juries in the specific context of serious sexual offences. During the coronavirus pandemic, there was a proposal that the Scottish government brought forward, which uh, the opposition parties got stopped uh, in, the, uh, in, in, in Holyrood to abandon jury trials altogether um, mm. for the duration of the pandemic. Um, uh, and that was a proposal which, again, it seems uh, was one that had judicial support uh, behind the scenes, even though um, uh, other lawyers might have, might, might have opposed it. The broader political point for me is if we look at the public policy agenda just now um, that the Scottish Government's having to wrestle with, uh, let's take uh, alcohol sponsorship. That has been cancelled. Uh, the highly protected marine areas, uh, I think there's going to be some rowing back on that. Excuse the semi-pun. The DRS system uh, has been delayed. Uh, the GRR uh, is in a stalemate. Um, uh, with the Section 35 order. And now we have juries and some pretty uh, high uh, temperature opposition to it from uh, the profession. All of these things have a common thread running through it to me, and it's that lack of consultation with those most impacted, the professions impacted. Uh, and there's a sense and a perception, and it is a perception, that it's a we know best in government and you'll do as we say, until the moment, of course, that the legislation's brought forward or the consultations are brought forward, and then there's this huge opposition. Now, if I contrast that with my time in government, I don't think there were many examples where uh, we took forward propositions that were so vehemently opposed uh, within uh, hours, days of them being... Uh, led at Parliament. This has to stop. Now, in defence of Hamza, a lot of this was, predates him in terms of him being First Minister, and there isn't a legacy there of this uh, pretty chequered uh, public policy uh, realm that we're in. But nonetheless, the buck stops with him, and to take what Andy said earlier, he has to start distancing himself from this, uh, and, and with a bit of conviction, else these things are going to drown him. He needs to separate himself and be his own man. I know I keep repeating myself in this podcast. Who is he? Who is his government going to uh, represent? And what does he stand for? And we haven't got there yet. We're dealing a lot with legacy stuff. Uh, I, don't and it we, does... I, don't, I don't think we ever will get there. I don't think he's capable of it. I mean, I, I worked very, close with Hamza, very closely with Hamza Yusuf for six months. Uh, in the Scottish Parliament when I was the convener of the Justice Committee and he was the, sec the Cabinet Secretary for Justice. I worked very, very closely with him on three bills, the most important and controversial of which uh, was the hate crime bill. And, and what I learned um, about the way he operates and about how his mind works during that period, Jeff, was that um, you know, he is incredibly easily led. The, the point that you've both been making about his um, uh, completely unnecessary gaffe uh, on the Radio 4 interview this morning... Um, is just the latest, latest example of he's, he's easily led by an interviewer, he's easily led by a journalist, he's also easily led by whatever pressure groups seek to lobby him, and he's easily led by a civil service. I, I, I do not believe at all that he has the intellectual or the political resources within him uh, to turn any of this around. I think that what we're seeing in these first few weeks 
of the USAF administration is what we are going to see until that USAF, until that administration eventually topples over, which it will. There's another thing that concerns me, I think, and it's a broader point about all of this. There's a thread that runs through a lot of this. And I think from the point of view of um, somebody who wants to see Scotland thrive and do better... It's very concerning because we shortcut stuff. We don't do the heavy lifting. We try and take shortcuts in this country. So um, instead of educating people about the misnomers, for example, about sexual offence crimes, let's just scrap juries instead, and then we don't have to do the hard work. Instead of improving our school results, let's just pull out of international studies. Don't have to do the hard work. Let's just cut off the end part so nobody notices. You know, instead of building a bigger and better tax base to increase the tax take in this country, just tax the rich rich instead. You know, we are cutting out the difficult steps in this country across a whole range of policy areas, and we're just... This is not about Hamza, this is going back years and years and years. We we take the easy way out, and it's actually a total betrayal of the history of this country, this, this country with a history of incredible intellect which has given the world so much... We just don't try anymore. And I think that's one of the things that upsets me the most about the post-evolution era, era actually, is it has been full of virtue signalling and empty on substance. We just don't try hard enough anymore, I don't think. Jeff? Yeah, I mean, well, <clears throat> I agree to a certain extent. I'm going to pick up on Adam's point and then return to, to Andy's point um, shortly. I mean, Adam, you may be right in your analysis that he doesn't Hamza, that is, have the uh, you know the the, the political antennae uh, to to change course or change his approach. I would simply say ha- he has to. Uh, he has to at least try, um, because the alternative is, is, as you rightly say, that we'll continue in this cycle, this vicious cycle of trying to be all things to all people and end up being uh, nothing to anybody. And, and I think. Uh, it's not difficult to try and train that in. It's not easy to ex- execute, but it's not difficult to try and train that and learn from your errors. Goodness sake, I have made more errors in government than anyone combined, I can tell you that, but I think I learned from them. And he's got to look back on this first period of his uh, tenureship and say, right, now's the time. For me, I believe he has to now say, right, this is who I am, this is what I'm going after. A much more conviction. I know I'm going to disappoint people. I might piss off the odd uh, interest group here and there, but this is what I believe in, and this is what I'm going after. I, I feel there's an identity crisis with the SNP just now. It doesn't really know what it is. Is it, is it a party of economic growth, or is it more of well-being, um, economy, and much more um, social provision? I've always maintained that you can be both, actually. Um, uh, and I think that there needs to be a sense of this is what I'm going after. I always say in the cabinet room in St Andrew's house, when we had the odd cabinet there, there was this uh, big mantra on the wall that said, we believe in sustainable economic growth for Scotland. Uh, high value job creation as part of a just and more fairer society. That is what kind of led us Uh, That was the mantra that we aspired to, and it was a good reminder to have that up on the wall. We looked at, that's what this is all about, guys. We want to make this a wealthier, more prosperous place for all Scots, and then we can be fairer. I feel that there needs to be that reset to Andy's point. Now, Andy, you mentioned um, about uh, how policy is taken forward in this country. You may have a point, but I'll just draw upon my own experience again. I remember any time 
that we engaged in a policy proposal. We'd have experts both domestically and internationally lined up before we even presented a bill or a policy proposal to start the discussion weeks and months in advance. So you were creating an environment where people were discussing the issues before the government launched its proposal. This type of thing is politics, guys. It is pure politics. You have to bring the country with you. You can't just announce things and hope people will fall into line. You have to bring the experts, you have to bring, whether it's academic, business people, the third sector, you have to bring them with you before you launch your proposals, not afterwards, and then be playing catch-up all the time. It is a tactic, I accept that. Um, And I do accept also some of what you're saying, but it's the lack of effort that goes into that particular aspect of policy making that's so disappointing for me. Mm. Adam, it's a really interesting conversation that, that, that Andy's provoked. You know, in terms of are we taking easy ways out, Jeff's experience of being in government there, is there, are, are there, is there a kind of depth to this that we need to start grappling with in terms of how the Scottish Parliament functions, does devolution function, um, is the Scottish Parliament bad at making policy? Um, yeah, it's terrible at making policy. Most parliaments are, though. Um, uh, m- mostly parliaments um, react um, to policy which is made elsewhere. Um, uh, mostly uh, parliaments uh, pass legislation which is not their own is- initiative but brought to them by governments. And policy is made inside political parties, inside governments uh, and inside uh, the groups, the stakeholders, as they're called now, that contribute to, to that, to that policy making process. The, the the issue I think we have in uh, Scotland, however, is is less. I think it's less about process and more about substance. I want mm. to get away from process, f- focusing all the time on process and you know who, h- how things happen and who. Do, I, uh, the, for me, um, the two big challenges that Scottish policy face are first um, uh, the the economy. Um, and you, you can't even now say that the question needs to be how do we grow the economy because there are some people who are opposed to the, the whole mantra, the whole ethic of, of, of growth. But how do we build the economy in a sustainable way? And I don't care whether you're on the well-being economy side of that or the Liz Trust growth at all costs side of that or somewhere like most sensible people are in the middle of that. It should unite right and left. It should unite yes and no. It should unite leave and remain. Right. We should all be concerned about the fact that the tax base in Scotland is too small to pay for the level of public services that we say that we want as a group of citizens. So that's the first major challenge. The second major challenge is public sector reform, uh, public service reform, excuse me. And that, if you go back to the, you know, 25 years ago, to the, to the, to the foundational period of, of, of devolution in the late 1990s, um, when it was being designed and delivered, that, that's why it was being designed and delivered, because the sense was in the Labour Party and in the Liberal Democrats as well that um, public se- service reform had fallen behind uh, in Scotland in the 1980s and the 1990s, and that's what we needed a Scottish Parliament for. That's why health is devolved in full. That's why education is devolved in full. And in the last 20 years, we've seen much more and much more serious and also much more successful public service reform south of the border than north of the border. You know, the gap between the best schools in London, best state schools in London, and the best 
um, uh, fee-paying schools in London has closed massively in the last uh, 15 years. The gap between the performance of uh, good schools and poor schools in Scotland is, is widening. Not, not growing. That's just one example. Now, and wherever I talk, whether I talk to people who are still, as it were, in the bubble, um, or whether I talk to uh, people a long way removed from the, the Hollywood bubble, these are the two sets of issues that they keep coming back to over and over and over again. So interestingly, mm. not the Constitution, not identitarian politics, certainly not gender recognition. Not, I mean, people are obviously interested in the police investigation into uh, the SNP, but the, the, the fundamental issues that drive people's hopes and anxieties about Scottish politics are the economy and what I would call economic growth um, and public service reform. And what, you know, what, what, we, what we desperately need um, is a government, a, a political party, an op even an opposition party, for God's sake, that is prepared to ruthlessly talk about nothing other than those issues. So, and it seems to me, Callum, that there are, there are two people in Scottish politics who are trying to do that. One of them, and the most successful of them, is Kate Forbes. That's exactly what Kate Forbes is trying to talk about. Um, and she's trying to do it from the back. She's doing it from the back benches. She's trying to do it in a way which is not, you know, it, deliberately or overtly undermining her, her, her government. Um, but that's, that's her agenda. And the other person who really needs to up his game, frankly, and talk about this much more clearly and much more coherently is Anna Sawa. Because, um, you know, it, it is clear that uh, both in the United Kingdom and uh, in Scotland, we are moving towards elections that are likely to be change elections rather than continuity elections. Mm. But, and it is also true that it is governments that lose elections rather than oppositions that win them. But the final thing, which is, <laughs> which is true, is that governments lose, opposition, lose elections to oppositions that have started to look like governments in waiting. And yeah. the Scottish Labour Party does not yet look like a government in waiting because even people like us who are very close to the bubble, who like to you know, obsess about the minutiae of Scottish politics, would not be able to answer basic questions such as what's Scottish Labour's education policy? What was Scottish Labour Party actually doing government about this, about the state of the Scottish NHS? And, and, and these are the issues that people want to be addressed in their public conversation and in their, in their political conversation, it seems to me, in Scotland. And there yeah. is a huge silence in, in all of that. So I'd much rather talk about these issues of substance, frankly, than the process issues of why policymaking is all a bit <laughs> Policymaking is all a bit <laughs> because we're not talking about the right policy. Yeah. And, and, and the, see, the... I, I totally agree with everything Adam has said, which may not be a huge surprise to anybody listening to this podcast. Um, <laughs> the difficulty with it, and a lot of people, a lot of people say, and the opposition often, the Tories often will say, um, this doesn't happen because all of the SNP's focus is on independence. I actually don't think that's correct. I don't think it's a process issue. Governments have the bandwidth to do more than one thing at one time. You can look at constitutional change and you can do policy change as well at the same time. The issue is not a bandwidth one about the SNP focusing on independence. The issue is that if you really tackle these issues, you upset people. And if you upset people, you lose votes. So, for example... Everybody privately knows that the NHS, if you want, want state-funded universal healthcare provision, you have to start again. 
you have to have a blank sheet of paper and rebuild the system because it doesn't work anymore. It has already crumbled. You can't say that because you lose the support of the BMA and the RCN and you lose the votes of doctors and nurses. And a lot of them at the moment vote yes and a lot of them vote for the SNP. And if you upset the apple cart, you lose them and you can't afford to lose them when the stakes are so high. So it's not a constitutional, it's not a bandwidth issue about not focusing on these things in government. It's actually a political decision not to rock the boat. And that is why we don't talk about these things. And that's not a criticism of the SNP, incidentally, because the Tories would do the very self-same thing if the shoe was on the other foot. That's the problem we have. And it's a bit fatalistic, I understand. I don't know when we are going to be in a position to have these conversations. I think well, we're still I, quite I, far I, away. I think, I think, I think um, I'm more optimistic than Andy about this, actually. Because, um, one, I think the SNP still have much more room for manoeuvre than they might think. It is true that they've slumped in the polls, but it's also true that they've slumped to 39%, right? I mean, they are still way in front, right? They are still sky high in terms of the kinds of numbers that Labour or the Tories um, uh, could uh, ever hope to uh, compete with. Um, but the, the, the second thing that I, I think is really important to add into this conversation is what the Supreme Court decided in November transformatively changed the landscape of Scottish politics in ways that none of the political parties have yet realised. Right? There is no referendum route to independence from here. Right? The, that doesn't mean that there's no constitutional route to independence from here, but there's no referendum route. And what I mean by that is that whether Scotland becomes independent or not is now not going to be decided by referendum, ever. If Scotland becomes independent, Scotland will become independent because and only because it has become, and I'm going to use Donald Dewar's phrase here deliberately, it has become the settled will of the Scottish people. As soon as it, everybody has agreed, you know, unionist and nationalist alike, that the decision maker here is the Scottish people. The sovereign body in Scotland is the people of Scotland. Everybody agrees with that proposition, right? So if it becomes the settled will of the people of Scotland to pursue independence, then Scotland will pursue independence. And until it becomes the settled will of the Scottish people to pursue independence, Scotland will not become independent. That's the, that's the constitutional fundamental that the Supreme Court judgment reconfirmed uh, in, unanimously in November. So the question for a nationalist is, how do we make it? How do we, how do we engineer it so that it becomes the settled will of the Scottish people to pursue independence? And the answer to that is you do two things, right? You rebuild the economy so that the economy of Scotland can withstand the undoubted shocks and tremors of becoming independent. And that means principally you grow the tax base. Doesn't, that's not the only thing it means, but that's the main thing it means. And secondly, you use all of the powers you've got at the moment to show how much better Scotland can be than this. We have set the bar so low. We've allowed ourselves to set the level of expectation so dismally low. If you could use the powers, if, the, if we had a government that used the powers to transform the health service so that it works, because it doesn't work at the moment, it is broken, um, so to transform the, 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 the way in which secondary schooling in particular in this country is run so that we improve rather than uh, make worse our um, performance uh, as, and then turn around and say, imagine, 
look at look at all this that we've done with these limited powers. Imagine mm. what we could do if we had all the powers. That that's the route to independence, right? Um, and, and and that's that's why I think um, uh, that there is absolutely no chance of there being independence anytime soon because Hamza Yusuf and his team are manifestly incapable of even a, even 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 framing the question in that way. Never mind addressing and resolving it. who says, just spent three days at the resident Covent Garden. Room was excellent, so were the staff. The room and the hotel, clean and tidy. Staff were friendly and very efficient. We'll be going back soon. And in the interest of double sourcing, it's just what we have to do as rigorous journalists. How about this from Gufton, which I assume must be a code name. The best hotel I've stayed at in London. The customer service was unsurpassed from the moment I walked in the door. It actually all makes us very proud to be supported by The Resident. And you can join The Resident online. Go to residenthotels.com. And if you all do that, they'll actually just be very pleased with us. So go to residenthotels.com. Thank you. Adam, listening to you uh, speak there reminded me um, of a conference speech that uh, myself and Stephen Noon uh, uh, wrote for... Uh, uh, the First Minister, and I can't remember the exact date, I'm going to say 2012-2013, exactly that premise. Look at what we've achieved yeah. with the powers of devolution, but look what we could do with the powers of independence. And I agree, I've said on this podcast many times, the, the economy is absolutely crucial. That is where, in my opinion, the Yes campaign fell short in 2014, and in the eight years since, there has been very little effort to try and bridge that gap and really target uh, that um, swithering, persuadable uh, no voter. Mm. I want to just resist one thing that you said. I, I agree in terms of um, uh, where things stand in terms of the constitutional stalemate uh, at large. I don't necessarily think the referendum route is, is gone. I think once you get to that position uh, that we've just discussed of building the case... Uh, through that competent government 
and look at what we could do with the powers, the full financial powers of independence. If you do get to a position where uh, polling is at regularly 55 to 60 percent, then you might have a situation where you go down. That strengthens your hand. You go down to Westminster and you say to the Prime Minister, now, come on, this is ridiculous. Give us that um, powers to hold that extra revenue. You might yeah. have that route. But I accept the premise yeah. of what you're saying. No, sorry, I mean, I agree with that. So, uh, what, what, I, what, I, what I meant was that there would never be another referendum like 2014 or indeed ah, like yeah. the Brexit referendum in 2016, where the question is, should we do this or not? If there's another referendum on independence, it will be much more like the 1997 referendum, sorry, 1999 referendum on devolution, or whenever it was. I feel I'm losing my track of time. Whenever that referendum was. And what, that, what the devolution referendum did was it confirmed something which we already know. We will all know when it has become the settled will of the Scottish people to pursue independence. Everybody will. You will you'll be able to feel it. You know, you, you'll know. And, and we'll probably have to hold a referendum to confirm it. But the referendum won't decide whether Scotland becomes independent. Scotland would already have made that decision, and the referendum will simply, simply mm-hmm. confirm it. And that will be an entirely different tone of referendum from what we experienced and participated in uh, in, in 2014. Yeah, that was, uh, that, was what, that, that was what I was trying to say. I understood, and I, and I agree with that. I, I, can I just? I'd really like to, Callum, if I may ask both Andy and Adam a question, um, because you mentioned, um, you know, the the importance of you know the, the education system just now and, and health. The next election we have, as you rightly say, is a change election, but it's at Westminster, so it's unlikely that we're going to get into in depth those devolved policy areas, um, and, and much to much extent. Um, Andy said on this podcast before he doesn't really feel Brexit is the issue uh, that it once was in terms of being relevant. I put it to you, if you're looking at the SNP just now and you've got Labour Party basically saying we're not going to try and change the, the Brexit circumstance in a significant way, surely there is an opportunity if the economy, and this is the big thing, um, if the economy is still stagnating significantly, uh, uh, next year, for the SNP to say to make Brexit that issue, Brexit that issue, uh, as as giving itself relevance at that election, because we've been discussing, like it was last week, that they're in danger of being shrouded out, and I do wonder if 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 that is one route that Hamza and Stephen Flynn need to take going into the 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 general election next year, and I would like your views on how successful or otherwise you think that might be. I, I just think I think I just I, I think it would be I think it, I, I think it could be successful only if it wasn't presented as a constitutional issue, right? Um, at the moment, when you say Brexit, people put it in the constitution box, in the same box as independence sits, and people are sick to the back teeth of thinking about and hearing about people talking about things that are in that box. But if you take Brexit out of that, but if you if you can present it in such a way that you take Brexit out of the constitution box and put it in the economy box and say this isn't an argument about constitutional change, this is an argument about economic damage or economic well-being or economic growth, then I think that could be successful. My my, my sense overwhelmingly is that people have, have just had it with. Um, identitarian politics and with constitutional politics and they want their political leaders and they want their political parties to be ruthlessly, resolutely focused on questions of economic growth and the cost of living crisis and uh, you know, the household economies and inflation um, and um, public service reform. Now Brexit is not irrelevant 
to that conversation. But Brexit needs to be for Brexit to work as a as a as a um, part of the um, SNP's Westminster election campaigning in 2024. It needs to be presented through the prism, refracted through the prism of the economic and um, uh, public services issues, rather than. Um, just pulled out of the constitution box in a way that it has been uh, by Mike Russell and uh, Nicola Sturgeon ever since June 26. June 26. I mean, I just think on on, on Brexit, I, I think the same as I thought I've thought for years, which isn't always a good sign. But um, <laughs> I I think that you have and polling I think shows this. You have Remainers in Scotland who are very. Europhile Remainers who will still rather vote for a pro-Brexit pro-UK party in other words they, they, their, their constitutional focus is more on the UK dimension than the European dimension they'd rather have a UK out of the EU than a Scotland inside the EU because their, their domestic constitutional focus takes precedence for them over their European constitutional focus and it's the same the other way around with leave voters who are pro-yes. And I think that is the case. The other thing I think about Brexit is that, I mean, the day before the uh, Brexit referendum, you would have been forgiven for thinking that if we voted to leave, we would wake up the next morning and there would be no water in the tap. Right? It was like Armageddon situation. <laughs> That's what we were told. You'll not be able to fly Tenerife for your holidays. There'll be no coffee in your pot. You know, there's not going to be any laces in your shoes when you get downstairs the next morning if you vote leave. And the problem is when you when you present that if you're a remain and I voted remain, right? But when you present that narrative as a remainer and it doesn't come true, you look like an idiot. And people start to say, hmm, actually, okay, I see that Brexit's pretty crap. I get that it hasn't been very good and it's been a bit of a complete waste of time, but it's not actually as bad as you told us it was going to be. And I think that over over the years, gradually, people will just accept the fact that we've done something, I mean, which is my view, I think we've done something pretty daft. I always thought it was unnecessarily daft. I thought it was an internal Tory issue which had come to the forefront. But I'm not actively, I wouldn't actively seek to change it anymore because it's done now. It's a little bit like the Edinburgh trams. Nobody really wanted them. And everybody said they would never use them. But they're here now, so you may as well get on. And, and I, you know, I think that, I do think that's fundamentally where most people are on Brexit. <laughs> that was very helpful analysis. You won't get that anywhere else other than on the Hollywood no, Sources podcast. No, you definitely won't get tram analysis anywhere else. I mean, that is a Hollywood Sources exclusive here on the tram, yeah. I must say. Give us a few years and we'll be chatting about getting on ferries and things next because they'll be running no, so on schedule. <laughs> no more Brexit buses, it'll be Brexit trams. That's right. Just cruising along Printer Street in a straight line because that's all they can do. Right, let's um, <laughs> let's go on, uh, Adam. I'm so interested. Your your insight is really is really fascinating. As I said, I started the podcast saying you have a big brain, and I absolutely meant it. I wonder how much of that though has been developed as a result of of spending a few years in the thick of it, as it were, as an MSP, um, and how much you. I don't know how much you were able to achieve, how much you were able to learn. Did it meet expectations? What was it like in there, actually, as an as an MSP? Um, it was great. I really enjoyed it. Um, but but the reason why I really enjoyed it is because um, in the parliament in which I served, um, no uh, one party had a majority. Um, it was a parliament of minorities, and that meant that nobody, not even the government, could get anything done 
unless they could get somebody else to agree with them. Mm. Um, and, and that is, of course, how a uh, single chamber parliament is supposed to work. That's the, that was the design um, behind the, uh, the electoral system that we use for the, the unicameral legislature that we have in Holyrood. Um, it doesn't always work. It didn't didn't work in the parliament before that because the SNP had a majority, and it's not working in the current parliament because the SNP have created a majority by going into uh, what is, a, to all intents and purposes, a coalition with the Greens. And the important thing about the deal that the SNP have with the Greens is not just that the Greens will support government policy, but the Greens will support the SNP on every single vote in the chamber, on every vote on every bill, on every vote on every amendment to every bill, which means that every single vote in the chamber is already a foregone conclusion. And there is literally nothing for an, an opposition MSP to do in terms of trying to make law uh, better or more coherent or, you know, as I was trying to do with the hate crime bill, less incompatible with European human rights law. Um, and it was it was that element of the job that I really enjoyed. So I worked really hard on a whole series of bills ranging mm. from social security to hate crime via planning reform, tax law, a whole whole range of issues, um, partly in the chamber and partly on the committees on which I served. And with regard to all of those pieces of legislation, I was able to suggest and bring and make amendments, normally with um, government cooperation, um, uh, because, you know, I was able to use my uh, kind of legal skills and my political uh, skills, I suppose, a bit, a bit as well, to try and make the law a little bit less, a, a little bit less incoherent or a little bit less violative of fundamental principles. Mm. Um, uh, and this and sounds I, this I, sounds like what the Scottish Parliament was designed to do. But I yeah. just wonder if if it d- did it feel functional then, and how would you contrast that with how it feels? Like- I, admittedly, looking I, I, in from the I outside think, a bit. I think, no. the Scottish, I think the Scottish Parliament is re- the Parliament in which I served, the session of the Parliament in which I served. I think it, it, I think it acted really well as a legislature. I think mm. it, the lawmaking function of the Scottish Parliament was was really good. But the, but parliaments in our system do two things: they make law, but they also hold the government to account. Yeah. And that's the bit that you tend to see, because the lawmaking process is for nerds, it's for people like me, it's for people who care about, um, you know, the, the individual clauses of individual bills, which most of even your listeners probably aren't spending many of their waking hours poring over. The bit of politics that you see isn't the legislative process. The bit of politics that's in the public eye um, is... Uh, the way in which the uh, a parliament seeks to hold a government to account. There's no lawmaking in first minister's questions or prime minister's questions. That's about how you hold the government to account. And, and, and that element of the Scottish Parliament's job, it was absolutely bloody awful at. It still is. It's <laughs> really? just hopeless, completely hopeless, because everybody goes into the chamber with a completely tribal mentality. And it doesn't matter how poor a cabinet secretary is, they'll be supported by their backbenchers. And it doesn't matter how good uh, a government policy is, it'll be opposed, um, at least it would have been opposed in my old party, uh, the Scottish Tories, who can't see any good coming out of the SNP under any circumstances ever, which is all just so juvenile. It's kind of eats, eats away at your soul. And that's, why, that's one of the reasons why. There are two reasons why I got out. Um, th- that's the first reason. And the second reason is because I saw the writing on the wall and I predicted that in the current parliament, you, you just wouldn't be able to do as an opposition MSP the kinds of things with regard to the lawmaking process that I was able to do uh, in the last parliament. And I thought, I'm not going to sit there for five years of my life, sit, literally sitting on my hands, unable, unable to influence anything. That's a complete waste of time. Adam, can I ask you uh, two very brief questions? Uh, we've been very fortunate on this podcast to have Kate Forbes, Jean Freeman, Ruth Davidson, Joanna Cherry, 
um, uh, some people of Anasarwar, people of real substance that are thinking about these things that you raise, not all agreeing with you necessarily entirely, uh, and we don't agree with them all entirely, but it does strike me that we're in danger in the Scottish Parliament of losing people of substance that can really offer um, uh, and constructive ways forward. So my question to you is this. Is there anything that could tempt you back to frontline politics, to elected politics at, at Holyrood? And secondly, how do we fix this? Because I think there's broad agreement that there are weaknesses here. There are some very good things as well. I, we shouldn't uh, gloss over that. But would you come back? Under what circumstances? And how do we fix it? No, I'm not coming back. I'm done. Um, my, 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 my race is run. Uh, I, 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 I am genuinely really glad I was able to do it. And I'm very grateful to, to those who, who made it happen. Um, uh, but I'm even gladder that I'm not doing it anymore. Um, uh, um, how do we fix the problem? That, that we, so the problem is that we have 129 MSPs, only 20 of whom are any good. That's the problem, right? Um, you only mentioned two earlier in well, terms of the economic argument. I think those are the best. I think Sawar okay. and, and Forbes are the, are, the, are the best. But there's, you know, there's, as Jeff just said, you know, there's yep. a, the, 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 it's, not, it's not a tiny, tiny puddle. It's not, it's not a huge, deep loch either. But it's, um, uh, it's, 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 it's not completely dismal. Um, there are some good, hard-working, thoughtful men and women, um, both in the House of Commons and uh, representing Scottish seats and in uh, the, the Scottish Parliament. How do we get more of them and, and get the dross out? Um, I, I, I think that's largely up to parties, isn't it? It's, you know, it's parties who select um, uh, um, candidates. When Ruth um, became leader of the Scottish Conservatives, she knew that she had a lot of, frankly, dead wood that she needed to clear out. Um, she knew that she was um, rebuilding from the bottom. Uh, she knew that she needed to attract new people to the party. And I was one of those new people. I'd never even voted Conservative before I joined the Conservative Party. And the reason why I joined the Conservative Party is very easy to state. It's Ruth Davidson. She's the reason I joined the Conservative Party. Um, and... Uh, and you know, there the, the needs to be that that drive, that dynamism from the top of each party. I would argue, uh, in the Scottish Parliament, to find new people, people who've got things to say, people who haven't necessarily spent the last forty years of their lives being tribal loyalists. Um, actually, people actually those are the last people you need. We've got you know the Scottish Parliament's full of those people. Um, and, and it's doable. I mean, Ruth, Ruth put together a team of people that included me that was that, that was quite impressive. And Anas, I think, is trying to do the same thing uh, on the, the Labour benches. Um, I think it's interesting and probably a positive thing uh, that uh, it was reported earlier this week that Hamza Youssef has paused the selection process for the SNP in the forthcoming, presumably forthcoming Rutherford by-election because he was reported to be unhappy with the quality and range of the candidates coming forward. That, that's the sort of thing that we need to see happening in all, in, in all the parties, right? There is, there is far... We, again, it's another example of the sort of thing Andy was talking about. As a country, we have grown very comfortable accepting second or third or fourth best as if that's good enough, as if that's all we can do. Mm. Um, and that includes the calibre of people who serve in our parliament. Really interesting. What would, post-general election, what would serve the people of Scotland best? A Labour majority 
a Labour Lib Dem coalition or a Labour SNP coalition? In the House of Commons? Yeah. A small Labour majority. Um, There needs to be uh, a uh, stable government, um, uh, certainly not a government that is uh, necessary, uh, that is uh, dependent on uh, on the SNP uh, for for support. Um, uh, The Lib Dems may or may not have something to offer. I've not seen any evidence of it recently. Um, uh, Proportional representation, that'll do it. I, I'm not. I'm not sure about that. I don't think. I don't think the United Kingdom is quite ready for that yet. But you know, maybe. I mean, it's a third-term issue. But Starmer's not going to get a third term um, mm. with a small with a small majority. He'll be very lucky to get a second. I think. They, look, the issues that the British economy faces are deep and profound, and are not going to be any. The, the, a, a Labour government is not going to find it any easier to solve them than the current than the current Conservative government. But it's clear that we need a change of uh, government. The Conservative Party needs a period in opposition to figure out. Uh, where it's going and what it wants to try and achieve next. And I think all of that is going to happen uh, in uh, 2024. Um, And I I would like to see a a Starmer administration with a small majority. That's really interesting. And I wonder if I can just reflect actually on the language that I use there in terms of what would serve the people of Scotland best at the House of Commons. Because as I said, I'm wondering what I mean by that. Do the people of Scotland benefit directly from a change of government at Westminster? Or does that still filter through a Holyrood lens and the level of cooperation with which the House of Commons in uh, Westminster operates uh, or cooperates with Holyrood. I think both of those things are true, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, the, 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 the people of Scotland um, absolutely do benefit from whoever is in government uh, in Westminster. Um, it, it is still the case, uh, for just to give one tiny example, it is still the case that e- even with regard to policy areas which have been devolved legislatively to Holyrood. Spending within, public spending within those policy areas can still come to Scotland and does still come to Scotland from from the centre, from the Treasury, from the, from, from, from the UK. So um, employment support is devolved. But in the pandemic, the furlough scheme was UK-wide. And that wasn't Scottish money, that was, that was UK money. So that's just a tiny example um, of the sort of thing that happens on a routine daily basis that the people of Scotland benefit directly from, from, from Westminster administration. But I think, you know, it, it, is, it, it is more clearly the case in May of 2023 it's more clearly the case that the next UK general election is going to be a change election than it is yet the case that the next Hollywood election is going to be a change election. But my God, the, Hollywood, the next Hollywood le- election needs to be a change election. Mm. Um, and I think that we'll get there more quickly and uh, more expeditiously if there's a change of government at, at, at Westminster. The, the other, I, I think the other thing that isn't explored all that often is... Um, you know, and it circles back to a lot of what we've said in this podcast about the need for us to talk about bigger issues and not talk about the process and the constitution so much, is the impact of a Labour government on the constitutional debate in Scotland. Because we've not had a Labour government since before the Salmond majority of 2011. So in other words, and that's when things started to get really hot. Actually, in the 20, 2007 to 2011 Parliament, nobody talked about referendums. It was, a, it was the first SNP government. But no, you, you guys, Jeff, may have talked about it internally, but externally nobody really talked about referendums because nobody thought for a second there'd be a yes majority in the parliament anytime soon. So, And ever since then there have been Tory governments. So I think it's interesting to... Um, it will be interesting to see just what impact the simple fact of having a Labour government in number 10 
has on the constitutional debate in Scotland. It could be quite significant. I mean, Adam rightly said that, I don't know, I'm paraphrasing slightly, but the, the, the Supreme Court's decision was probably the biggest thing that has happened in the constitutional debate since the referendum itself, because it changed the game completely. Keir Starmer, or it doesn't actually have to be Keir Starmer, the Labour Party in Downing Street could be equivalent to that in size, in terms of just what it does to the... Con- and I don't know what the answer is to that yet, because we've been a bit surprised over recent weeks, for instance, about how yes polling is holding firm, even though SNP polling is not. So, you know, events can... The reaction to events can take us by surprise. But the reaction to the event of Keir Starmer being in Downing Street and a Tory not being in Downing Street will be very interesting to analyse. And the SNP should really be, I'm sure, on the lookout for that to see what happens, because that could very fundamentally change the long-term game of constitutional change in Scotland. I, yeah, think, I, I, think, that's, I think that's true, but um, I, I, don't think it, I don't think that any of what Andy's just talked about will depend <coughs> on what a Starmer administration does with the Constitution. I think it will depend on what a Starmer administration does with the economy and does with reform to public services. Mm. I think if voters in Scotland see uh, that, that they have a, a, a UK-wide government that is resolutely focused on trying to tackle the cost of living crisis and putting more, money's, more money in families' pockets um, and uh, reducing the price of supermarket of the weekly sh- supermarket shop and all of that sort of thing, um, that, that, that's, that's what matters, not what Starmer does in terms of proportional representation for the Commons or reform of the House of Lords or mayors or any of that stuff. I just don't think that is where people are at at all in terms of their political priorities anymore. Yeah, I mean, we've gone a whole podcast here, guys, and we've not really assessed, um, you know, the potential impact on this on the Conservative Party. So let's let's leave the constitutional question to one side for a second. I'm really fascinated to know uh, from your two perspectives, because you're aligned, obviously, closely with the, the Tories. What does a, a Labour government do for the Conservatives in Scotland? Because so, the opposite of what you say is also true, Andy. Uh, you'd argue that the Scottish Tories have had to deal uh, with the incumbency of having uh, a Tory Prime Minister at number 10. Does this prevent, pre- present them an opportunity to reshape, refocus um, and try and make inroads? Uh, oh, it, present, it presents a huge opportunity, but it's not one that I expect them to take. Um, uh, the, the, the Tories have been a single-issue party for seven or eight years. It has yeah. been at every election, vote for us to stop NDRF2. That's it. That has been the pitch. And ironically, it was the Supreme Court that killed that pitch. That pitch is dead. Um, and they're still trying to reel it out, and I'm sure there'll be a you know a picture of... Keir Starmer and Hamza Yusuf's pocket, but it's not Ed Miliband and Alex Salmond anymore. It's a different thing, right? So that I just think that's going to die a death. I actually think the Tories will do fine at this general election because of where their votes are. I think they'll return the same number of seats on 7 or 8% less vote share than they did in 2019, and that will gloss over what's actually happening. Um, but the, the combination of uh, the Supreme Court decision and the prospect of the Tories not any longer being in power at Westminster has completely killed their strategy. So, I mean, at the moment, as far as I can tell, there isn't one. They don't have a strategy. And we have this strange optic of the party of opposition not really being seen as the party of opposition. You know, when when people talk about alternative first ministers, not 
anybody ever mentions Douglas Ross, ever. Nobody has a conversation, even Tories themselves, don't have a conversation that mentions Douglas Ross as the alternative First Minister. The alternative First Minister is an Sarwar or Kate Forbes, depending on who you're talking to. It's never Douglas Ross. So, um, you know, the, 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 the party um, is, in a sense, back to where it was when I was working for David McCletchie in the early 2000s. Oh, well, that is bad. has... A core vote, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, but that's where it is, you know. It has a core vote in the high teens, and the core vote has always been in the high teens. It has just been, um, it has been almost, uh, almost falsely augmented by the seven or eight percent of Labour voters who temporarily decided to vote for the Tories because they were the strongest unionist party in town, and they've all buggered off, and now they're back, left with the exact same core vote they had before. Now. It's not new to, for me to be saying this. Everybody's obviously, you know, I do upset people in the Tory party when I say this, but I've been saying it for a couple of decades now, but I happen to believe that I'm right about it. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that's where they are. They're back at that very fundamental point where they have to decide what on earth are they actually about? What are they here for? Adam, do you want to add a final word to that very quickly? I agree with every word that Andy has just <laughs> said, especially the first sentence. Um, a Starmer win uh, in 24 presents the Scottish t- Tories with a huge opportunity to redefine themselves, which they will fail to take. They will, I mean, they're, they're, they're pointless. That's their tragedy. That's their, that's their destiny. Adam, it's been really fascinating having you on. Thank you very much. Thanks for spending some time with us. Really good to have you there. Um, Adam Tompkins, who was Conservative MSP for the Glasgow region from 2016 to 2021. Uh, He's a professor, he's a constitutional lawyer, he's been a constitutional advisor, and that is why you've got such good value out of him today. Uh, Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Jeff, as well. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Lovely to have you both here as ever. If you'd like to get in touch with your questions, with your response to what you've heard as well today, you can email anytime. The email address is hello at hollywoodsources.com. We drop into your podcast feed every single week. Speak to you then. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.